Uh, good morning. If you'll turn to your seats, uh, we'll read the passage for this morning, which is Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? <clears throat> oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am warm, a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever we go through painful, challenging, difficult, or even just new things, one of our first instincts besides just trying to run from that pain and get away from that trial, that discouragement, that scary stuff, one of our initial instincts is to find someone else who can relate. Okay, so like when, when uh, you're an expectant mother, there's this book actually that's called like what to expect when you're expecting Okay? Or when you're preparing for marriage and you go for premarital counseling because you're talking to people who have been through this set of challenges before. Or when you have a certain medical condition, isn't it natural to find someone else who has also kind of faced or battled the same thing or something similar? We like in the midst of our trials to find someone that is relatable, someone that knows something beyond what we know. And I think that's one of the great values of the Psalms as we go through them now here for the second summer. And we'll end next week with Psalm 23. But the reason why people thousands of years later go back to the Psalms and read through the Psalms and meditate on the Psalms is because the emotions and the experiences and the mental processes that the various writers like David are working through, they're like, okay, they know what it's like to suffer They've seen challenges. They've, they've seen what it's like to feel like God is not going to show up or isn't showing up or didn't show up. And so we go back to the Psalms to relate and to understand and to learn. Well, this one is fascinating, this particular Psalm, because it goes much, much further than virtually any other Psalm. Because what we find in Psalm 22 is that not only do the Old Testament saints, like David, understand and relate to challenges, trials, discouragement, adversity, but we actually find that God himself relates to us in the midst of our trials and challenges and adversity. Kind of spoiler alert, this particular psalm is often referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. The Psalm of the Cross showing us that not only does David relate to us, but our Savior that we worship, Jesus Christ, relates to us. A few key points here this morning, beginning with the peril of the righteous. Let's notice this. So David's in some kind of trouble, verse 11. It's undefined. 
David's life was filled with adversity, challenges, trouble. We've talked about this as we go through the Psalms, that sometimes that trouble came from the king before him, Saul, who was not willing to relinquish the throne even though God had displaced him. It could have come from one of his sons who later challenged the throne and wanted a civil war. It could have come from surrounding nations and people groups, kingdoms, tribes that were constantly attacking the Hebrews, the Israelites, during the days of David. Um, But we see that he's caused severe, not only physical distress, but emotional distress, anguish, spiritual distress. He says later in this text, he's surrounded by his enemies, which he characterizes as wild animals, the kind of animals that want to literally just tear you into pieces and consume you. And in the midst of these trials, there are two things that are particularly painful to the writer. And the first of those I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 is that he's abandoned by God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. What he's saying is my cries for help are going completely unanswered. There is no rest. There is no relief. God is nowhere to be found. And the second thing that makes his peril or his affliction especially painful is that he's abused by men. David references in verses 6 through 8 not only, again, physical abuse, but verbal and emotional abuse. He says, I am scorned by mankind. I am despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And the thing is, his enemies know David trusts Yahweh, the Lord. And so the Lord's silence is doubly painful. You ever have this experience where you're like, it already hurts God that you are not answering me, but my adversaries know that I trust you. So in your silence, they are, they are not only mocking me, but they're also making fun of you because you're nowhere to be found. And they think that you're a a fake God and not a real God who can actually deliver anyone. And he's going through this turmoil. This is what I'm calling his peril. But I want you to notice with the second point here that he's not just giving in to frustration or despair. He's not letting this hopelessness take over his life and just say, well, I guess that's the end. But there's actually this internal dialogue and we get to kind of peek into his way of thinking his way of processing his pain, because he's arguing with himself. And I'll call this the protests of the righteous, where instead of just giving in to, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I feel hopeless, or you're distant, he's arguing and saying, but I know this is true. This this is happening. This is my experience. But I know this is true. And you see in the text, these, these moments are marked by the repetition of the word yet. He's saying, here's my experience, yet I know that this is true. And there are three, three things that he says here. First of all, like verse 3, I know you're holy. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. My experience is abandonment. But he's, what he's clearly saying is, even in the midst of this accusation that I feel abandoned, God, I know that you are not committing evil against me. I know that you're not impure You're not wrong in the way that you're treating me. The word holy is like you're literally set apart from evil. 
So what you're doing in my life, what you're allowing in my life, what you're saying right now or not saying, really, it's still good. You're still good. And I know that's true. And I'm hanging on to that hope and that protest. Going on verses four and five, a second protest is this. He says, I know you rescued others who called on you. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And it's kind of hard to know his state of mind here. There's, there's a couple ways you could take this. Is he frustrated that he's like, God, other people called on you and you rescued them. So I'm really frustrated because I'm calling on you and you're not answering me. Or is he reminding himself that God always eventually comes through for his people? God is there for his people faithfully, consistently, reliably when they see him and when they don't see him. And I think that's what he's actually saying because the next protest is, I know you cared for me in the past, verses 9 and 10. He says, yet, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. In other words, God, there's never been a moment, there's never been an, a, a circumstance where you were not reliably there. And I actually used to think it was weird that from time to time someone would pray something like this when we're dismissing kids. I pray that as these children are older, they look back and think, there was never a time I didn't know you. And part of me is like, well, well no, there, there was a time they didn't know you. There was a time they didn't know anything. And they actually had to make a choice to turn from their sin and to receive Christ. It's what the Bible calls conversion. But then I thought of verses like this, where he's not saying there was never a time where I first trusted you. But what he's saying is there was never a time that you weren't there for me. And as I grew, I came to realize I want to put my hope in the God who from my mother's womb had chosen me, had been reliably, faithfully there for me. And what I love about this particular point is David, again, isn't just giving into despair and hopelessness and frustration and angst and a burning anger with God of like, you've rescued everybody else that trusted in you, but what about me? He's combating, he's protesting his own initial response with what he knows to be true about God. So he's saying, it seems like you've abandoned me. It seems like you don't care. It seems like you're not even listening, but that's not the whole truth. The experience of my senses, the experience of my heart, the experience of my thoughts is not all that is true. And I think this order is so important because every one of you will go through things in life that are hard, that are painful, that are challenging, that are unjust, that are unfair. And we could go on and on describing bad things. Okay, you will go through things like that in your life. It's okay to say, I'm going through something bad. I'm going through something unfair. We've given you this language that the Bible calls lament, where the psalmists often are lamenting. They're in anguish. They're confessing, but they're actually complaining. But, but here's kind of a key point, is the order in which you complain is really important. See, very often what we do is say, God, I trusted you. I believed you were holy. I believed you cared about me. But look at this circumstance in my life. 
And when we put the truth first and then the complaint, we land on despair. Because we're starting with, I thought this was true about you. I believe this was true about you, but complaint, despair. And if we simply change that around, again, not, not just like hiding the despair and hiding the hard circumstances and being like, no, I'll just pretend like everything's okay. Well, the Bible doesn't call you to pretend like everything's okay. The Bible invites you to bring that complaint to God and say, this is challenging. This is hard. This is unfair. God, I'm just telling you, this is not fair, but here's the truth about you. And when we order it like that, which is how a lament in the Bible is ordered, we land on hope instead of despair. Because we're landing on this, this isn't what I used to believe, but circumstances taught me otherwise. We're saying circumstances say one thing, but what is timelessly, faithfully true about you and your character and your work leads me to hope. So in the midst of that hope, we find point three, which are the petitions of the righteous. So now David has started with this complaint, this angst, this anguish. He has rehearsed and protested in his mind, but this is also true. And now he's going to pray and ask God these specific petitions. First of all, be not far from me, verses 11 and 19. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And he repeats that in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. And it's tough to be in this position when trouble is near and God is far. And that's what circumstance he's in. The trouble is like right in front of his face. So that, that's what he sees. That's his experience. God is somewhere and he believes that God is somewhere. So he's saying, God, I, I need you to come and be near so I can see and experience your rescue and your truth and your holiness and your love. When you're drowning in adversity and drowning in anguish and the lifeguard seems like he's off duty, it is a terrifying thing. So he's saying, God, draw near, or at least make me aware that you're closer than I think. Secondly, he petitions God, verse 19, come quickly to my aid. Scholars point out that the word help here where he says, oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. It's actually a word that means strength, and he's actually using it as a title for God. He's saying, God, you're not only strong, you are strength personified. It's kind of like how we personify love, like God is love. That's what he's saying here. God, you are strength, come quickly. And again, this picture of like, I'm drowning, and if you come quickly, I'll be rescued. But if you don't come quickly, I'm going under. Come quickly to my aid. And then finally he petitions God and rescue me. Verses 20 and 21. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. And that's what I said at the beginning. He's, he's kind of like, instead of just saying like, here's this army or here's this uh, son of mine who's against me. He's casting this in poetic language of like, I, I feel like I'm encompassed by wild beasts like wild oxen. The National Park Service actually has this Instagram account, Facebook account, and I can't remember the name of it or I'd, I'd tell you because it's, it's kind of funny. It's basically like uh, idiots in nature, okay? And they always have pictures of like someone like walking right up to the bison to like take a selfie with the bison. And then someone else has the video of like the woman being thrown 50 feet by the bison, you know, or doing this with elk or various animals. And the idea is like 
the wild oxen back in, in his day was kind of like the, the bison. They didn't have bison over there. So it's this big, strong animal that's wild in its nature and has these horns, and it's very unpredictable, but without any warning, it's going to use those horns to gore you, okay? Or the wild dogs, and now we have domesticated dogs. We're like, oh, dogs, house pet. And like, dogs were not house pets back then. They were these wild packs of almost like coyotes and wolves roaming through the trash heaps of the various towns and cities, just consuming everything, okay? So he's thinking like, God, I need you to do the thing that my enemies say that you're not going to do. I need you to do the thing that I'm praying for you to do. I need you to do the thing that you've always done for our ancestors. Come and rescue me. And my point here is, like, this, this is a really important theme, even before we get to the biggest theme of this text. That is that in the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his lament, he's still praying. He's still talking to God and trusting God and saying, God, I, I know you're there. Like, my eyes don't see you. I don't comprehend you. I don't feel like you're near. I feel like you've abandoned me. But I'm still praying in faith. And that's part of my encouragement to you is where you find yourself in the midst of your challenges and trials and the injustice, just continue the conversation with God. Don't give up. Keep pressing in saying, God, I trust you even though I can't see you, even though I can't see you working in my life right now because there is a turning point. And the turning point of our text is verse 21. Here's what the Hebrew actually says. It says, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. And there's actually a different verb tense there. And it's not even rescue. It's literally the word answer. And it's a perfect tense. And he says, I'm praying, praying, praying. And you have done it. I thought you were never going to answer. I thought you had come too late. I thought it was over. But you have answered and we see in this perfect tense that this whole psalm shifts from petition and prayer and protest into praise then. And so that's the next point, the praise of the righteous. And notice first, the, the God is praised by the one who's rescued, by, by David himself. He says, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The vow is actually a votive offering. He's saying there's an offering that is given to God when God shows up in your life and does things for you. And he's like, I'm giving this back to you as a confession of my praise for what you've done. And, you know, I want you to see that, like, he's going through it. But he's protesting and saying, yet this is still true. And on the basis of the fact that this is still true, I'm going to cry out to you. And when you show up, like we talked about last week, I'm going to be faithful to praise you, not just like quietly, personally, privately praise, because I don't want to ruffle anybody else's feathers who doesn't believe in God. He's like, nah, like I'm going to throw a rock of praise and it's going to splash and the ripples are going to start to spread. Because after God is praised by the one who's rescued, notice God is then praised by the Jews. This is, these, these are David's people, verses 23 and 24. You who fear the Lord, he's saying, praise him. The implication, praise him with me. Because when God delivered me as the king, God delivered you because I'm the representative. 
all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And again, the offspring of Jacob and the offspring of Israel, two ways of referring to the Jewish people. And David's calling on them and saying, I know you already fear the Lord. You already reverence the Lord. You respect the Lord. You worship the Lord. But he's like, but join me in praising him for this new thing that he's done. Which is what? What's the new thing God has done? He says he has not ignored the suffering of the afflicted. Literally, he's not ignored the suffering of the humble. He has not hidden his face after all. And he's like, would you come, family of God, and rejoice with me that I thought he had given up. I thought he was out to lunch. I thought he was too late. But he showed up and he delivered through himself. Will you praise him with me? The ripple is expanding. The ripples are going to spread even further, verses 27 and 28, because we'll see God is actually praised by all the nations. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And what he's saying is not only are the covenant people of God hearing this good news of God's salvation, God hears the cry of the afflicted. God rescues the humble. He says, now this is spreading. As, as the people of God confess praise for the one who is worthy of praise, other people are hearing it. They're looking. They're seeing, wait, God rescued that afflicted one and raised him up and exalted him. I can see that he's king over all people, not just the Jewish people. The ripples continue to spread one more time. Because not only is God praised by the one who is rescued or his family or his people or all the nations, he goes on to say in 30 and 31, God is actually praised by all future generations. He says, verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Posterity is literally seed, like a future offspring, who, as he says in verse 31, are yet unborn. And the writer's point is that when future generations hear about what God did to actually hear the cry of the afflicted one, the humble one, and to rescue him and to exalt him, even people that are not yet born for all generations throughout all time, they will also come and worship this God for what he has done. Okay, now when we come to this point in the psalm, we want to acknowledge a couple of things. The first thing we want to acknowledge is that something like Psalm 22 actually happened to King David. Okay, it's, it's called a psalm of David. He's writing about his own experience. So he's saying, yes, there were, there were times where I was afflicted. There were times that I felt abandoned by God. There were times that other people surrounded me, literally encompassed me with their armies and were gnashing their teeth at me, flashing their swords at me. I felt like I was going under and I felt like God wasn't answering me. And there were times when he was mocked and ridiculed for his faith in Yahweh, 
for tearing down high places and wanting to worship the true God. There were times that he was just completely ridiculed for that. There are times he cried out and God did not show up to rescue him when and how he thought they should. But here's the thing. At the same time that we're saying something like this happened to David, we also have to acknowledge what David describes in Psalm 22 was far beyond anything that he actually personally experienced. And there are a couple ways that commentators, pastors, theologians, and just everyone has always taken that. One is to say he was just wildly exaggerating because it's poetry and you know how you do. Like we just took our kids fishing the last couple of days and they can be like, dad, did you, did you see that fish I caught? And I'm like, well, I did. I, I took it off the hook for you. I took it off the hook for you. Like, I mean, it was a good nine inch rainbow trout, good fight, but I did not take this fish off the hook for you. And they're like, it's, it's just, it's a fishing story. You know, he's like, oh, God is so good. I do horrible things. And others will look at this and say, no, he's not exaggerating. But what he's doing is by the spirit of God, he's prophesying. And that's your final point here this morning, the prophecy of the righteous. And let, let's test that theory that he was prophesying. So what I'm saying is David wrote about his own experience as the anointed king So a a person who's specially appointed to represent God's people and to rescue God's people. Okay, so he's saying, I'm the Messiah, to use that word anointed. I'm the Messiah. I have a calling on my life to represent and rescue God's people. But at the very same time, he is prophesying about another Messiah who is called to represent and to rescue God's people. And this other Messiah would experience what the psalm talks about. He would be mocked by people. He would be encompassed. He would be abandoned by God. But there's a turning point in that messianic story that Yahweh would deliver this Messiah. And then the good news of that salvation would spread first to God's people, the Jews, and then to the entire world, and then to subsequent generations. So then literally at the end of time, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that this Messiah is king. Okay, sound familiar? I hope so, okay, right? I hope this sounds familiar. Let's start here. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Christ. When he's on the cross, he quotes the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, and why that's so important, you ever, you ever go through this exercise of like, I've even heard pastors say, you know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and you're like, what was on his mind? You were on his mind. Okay, I mean, probably at some point in time in those hours, he's thinking about the people that he's going to rescue through his sacrifice. We can go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we can read what happened Right? In the passion of Jesus, his betrayal, his arrest, these fake trials where they trump up charges against him just so they can crucify him. But then the Jews can't do it and they have to go to the Roman authorities and say, well, you get rid of this guy for us. And they're like, sure, we'll crucify him for you. And we, we can read what happened to Jesus from the Gospels, but we can't really get far into his state of mind. But we have Psalm 22 for that. Because when Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know what was on Jesus' mind on the cross, and it was Psalm 22. 
That's why I called this at the beginning the psalm of the cross. What is Jesus thinking when nails pierce his hands and his feet and he's hanging there naked and exposed and ashamed? He's thinking Psalm 22. He's thinking, I am the one who has a unique calling to come and completely and perfectly fulfill this psalm. So stuff like this, verses 1 and 2. Jesus was forsaken by God. He was abandoned by God as the one who bore our sins. Jesus, verses 12 and 13, 16, 21, he was surrounded by fierce and powerful adversaries that gnashed their teeth at him, that that flashed their swords and spears and hammers and nails at him. Jesus, verses 6 through 8, was scorned, despised, mocked, ridiculed by everyone Do you know the religious leaders, as much as they said, you're not the true Messiah, you're you're a fraud, they fulfilled part of this prophecy because they quoted verse 8 against him. He trusted God, let him deliver him. If he really delights in him, Yahweh will come for him. They're literally quoting another part of the prophecy. Verse 14 Jesus' bones were pulled out of joint by the cross as he's nailed and then lifted up and slammed down in the hole and hanging there for hours and the muscles have completely fatigued and they're no longer to hold your own joints together and everything's just falling apart, literally. Verse 15, he was thirsty. Verse 16, they pierced his hands and feet with nails. Verse 17, Jesus' body was exposed to shameful stares for hours. Verse 18, they cast lots for Jesus' garments. There's no evidence that they ever cast lots for David's garments. David was not crucified. He was never naked and exposed like this. He was never thirsty like this. His bones were never out of joint like this. What a remarkable coincidence, right, that A thousand years later, all these things that David wrote about the Messiah figure would come true in the span of just a few hours, just in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. See, because David's prophesying, the righteous man is prophesying about another righteous man, an ultimate righteous man who would come not only to save himself, but to actually sacrifice himself in order to save others. Now, there is... One stunning difference between Psalm 22 and the actual experience of Jesus, and you you may know what it is. That is that when Jesus is on the cross and praying, why have you forsaken me? And he's praying and he's trusting and he's protesting. He's like, God, you're holy. Father, you're holy. And you've saved others and you've even saved me before. I mean, there were times earlier in Jesus' ministry where they're going to throw him off a cliff and he just walks right through the middle of everybody. And the Father rescues him. But not this time. The Father doesn't come just in the nick of time. John 19 says, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus died. So deliverance didn't come for Jesus. And when I say deliverance didn't come for Jesus, I don't mean that in a a totalized sense. I mean, deliverance didn't come when and how Jesus probably would have wanted Deliverance didn't come when and how it would have come if we had written the story about Jesus. Because we'd be like, we want to know he's 
willing to sacrifice and he loves us that much that he's willing to endure pain, but we don't want to see him die. And the father lets him die in order to write a better story. And that better story is how do verses 21 through 31 come true? It's because God the Father writes a better story by letting his son actually die and be buried, and then he's rescued, then he's exalted and made king over everyone and everything. Do you remember after Jesus is raised from the dead, there's this one story that Luke tells in chapter 24 of Luke where Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus and there are a couple of disciples there and they're just walking for hours and talking and it says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. But Jesus is kind of like castigating them. He's rebuking them for the fact that they didn't know. Because he's like, what are you talking about? How do you not know what we're talking about? He's like, just to answer the question, what are you talking about? Well, they're talking, we're talking about how this Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah, but then he was crucified. His hands and feet were pierced. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He's, he's dead. And, uh, and he says, well, he, he's not dead. He's resurrected. And they're like, yeah, we, we've, heard, we've heard rumblings that people have begun to see him. Now, three days later, first some women and then some others and some others. And Jesus says, yeah, you you should have known from your own scriptures that the Messiah would suffer anguish and be abandoned by God, be mocked by men, be killed, and rise again. And then Luke 24 says this, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you have to imagine Psalm 22 is in the mix, right? Let's talk about Psalm 22. Remember how David said this? Did that ever happen to David? They're like, well, no, it didn't. Well, did that just happen to me a couple days ago? Well, yeah, it did. And right on through. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is actually the one who throws the first rock. Because the father brings him back and exalts him and says, that is my son. Hear him. Trust him. And Jesus throws this rock of praise. The father is worthy of praise. And the father says, you're worthy of praise. I glorify you. And then Jesus goes, who who does he go to first? Kind of like his family, this inner circle of kin. And then to the Jews. And then to the nations. And then to every subsequent generation. Because that's all of us. We would have never heard the story if Psalm 22 weren't accurate prophecy. That this story of God's salvation of the humble one, that it would go on and on and on the snowball of praise building and building throughout every generation. Now, let me close with this. What does the suffering of Jesus say to your suffering? Because this isn't just about looking at David and having a good example, though it is that. It's much more than that. Let me give you four, four quick things that Jesus' suffering says to your suffering. And as I wrote these points, I was thinking about many different individuals and families in our church that are going through different things in their finances, their job search, unemployment, physical health, uh, broken relationships, chronic pain. I could go on and on. What does Jesus' suffering say to your suffering? Number one, Jesus gets you. And I don't mean that to be cliche or like casual. But what other God can say, I get it. 
I know. And, and, and when you're so desperate because you just found out that you have cancer or you just lost your job or you just lost that court case that you knew you were going to win and you're looking for who can relate to what I'm going through, this pain, this fear, this, this unknown about the future, Jesus gets you. He's been through it. Okay? The anguish that's experienced in Psalm 22 is actually the anguish that was borne by our Savior and Lord Jesus. He now, as our mediator, we sang a song this morning about before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And part of what Jesus is saying before the Father is like, whoa, you know, not that he has to talk him into being patient, but he could say things like, whoa, hold on, like, I get it. It's really, really hard, okay? What they're going through right now, as I'm praying for them, Father, is it's really, really hard and painful. Let's forgive. Let's show mercy. Let's show grace. Let's be patient. Let's lead them this way. And we have an advocate before the Father that completely, totally gets us and completely, totally gets our suffering and our pain and our anguish and our frustration. Number two, Jesus is a model for how to suffer, okay? I'll say in a moment that he's more than a model, but he's not less than a model. So when we see what's going on in this psalm of a person confessing the complaint, it's not hiding the complaint, it's not stuffing it down, it's not pretending like life was always rosy, but but confessing and crying out with that complaint and saying, yet I know this is true and I'm going to petition you because in the midst of my anguish, in the midst of my fear, in the midst of my confusion, in the midst of me not knowing, I trust the Father with my life. And that is a model for all of our suffering, just to continue to fight in faith and say, Lord, I, I, I believe, help my unbelief. My, my faith is there, but it is not strong. Will you come and strengthen me? Jesus is a model for how to suffer. Number three, what does Jesus' suffering say to your suffering? This one's so important. Jesus' abandonment means you will never be abandoned. Okay. When David is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had not forsaken him. Now, now, that was the reality of his experience of God in that moment. He felt like he had a sense that God had abandoned him, forsaken him, rejected him, ignored him, forgotten about him. But it wasn't true about David. Do you know it was true about Jesus? And, and commentators, theologians go back and forth. Well, maybe just Jesus, when he quotes Psalm 20, he felt abandoned, but he actually wasn't. The, the theological truth, family, is that God abandoned God on the cross. The Bible says Jesus bore your sin in his body on the tree. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Why was Jesus not just feeling abandoned but actually abandoned when the sky grew dark at midday? It's because he had taken all the sin of the world. And as David confesses here, you are holy, you are enthroned on the praise of your people, you dwell in the midst of praise. Jesus has to say, you are holy, you are enthroned on the praise of your people. You can't look at this. Because I'm, I'm taking the, the raw sewage of everyone's stuff and I'm drinking it all down. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross for you, for me, for our world. As he's saying, put it all on me. And the father looks away. 
And Jesus dies bearing the consequence of what you and I deserve. But hear this point again. Jesus' abandonment means you will never be abandoned. God says that there is nothing, as you trust in him who drank it all down, there's nothing now that can separate us. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. So when you feel abandoned, you can go back to a text like this and say, I do feel abandoned. I feel like he's not listening, but that is a feeling. I'm going to confront my feelings with the truth of God's word, that he's there and he's working for my good even when I can't feel him or see him because he will never leave me or forsake me. Finally, what does Jesus' suffering say to your suffering? Number four, it says Jesus paid it all. I read to you from John how Jesus' words were, it is finished. It's done. What is he referring to? All of salvation. All of the righteousness that had to be accomplished in your life and in my life for us to stand before a righteous God, he's saying it's done. There is nothing else to do. I lived a perfect life that I credit to you by faith. I died for your stuff and I credit that death to you. That's why, you know, in baptism, we're like, you're buried with him in death. You're raised with him to walk in newness of life because you're being associated with the gift of his life for you. And so the, why am I saying Jesus paid it all? What, how, how does that speak to your suffering? We have this idea sometimes. It's like, oh, God's punishing me. He caught up with me about that thing. And let me be clear, God, God loves you, and as a father, he will discipline you. And the root word there is disciple. Discipline, discipleship. He wants to train you. He wants to make you more like Jesus. But he is not punishing, which the root is punitive. It is uh, harm. It is wrath. It is anger. It's frustration being taken out on you. God will never, ever, ever punish you in anger or condemn you as a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all. And by the way, I'd, I'd never caught, all the times I've read Psalm 22, I never caught it until this time. What is the last phrase of Psalm 22? He has done it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying on the cross. His last words, his first words, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His last words, he has done it. It is finished. Let Jesus' suffering speak to you in your suffering.